Hello, and welcome to the Road to Redemption podcast. Thanks for listening as always. I want to talk about an issue today that is common among younger folk, and one that caused me a lot of angst when I was going through a tough time with my faith. I want to get right into it. So the issue I want to discuss is, why do we need a savior? When I was really thinking about how to tackle this question, I started to realize that I have to talk about the concept of sin before I can answer. So sin, in the original Hebrew, means to miss the mark. It is an offense against God and one's soul. To sin really means to go against the will of God. Most of the time when we sin, it is in the heat of the moment, but it can also be willful. Sinning side effects can involve regret, shame, and a knowing of not doing the right thing. And there lies the answer to our problem. Many people question the need for a savior because people don't have a concept of right and wrong. If they do, their concept of right and wrong becomes relative. What do I mean? I mean that one person, not religious at all, may think that cheating someone may be okay because they deserved it. Another person, also not religious, may think cheating the person was wrong no matter what. So if you take God out of the equation, which person is right? Well, the correct answer is both. Why? Because without God, morality becomes relative. Whoever in power has sole authority to dictate between right and wrong. The state may say that murder is illegal, but if there is no God, why would I care about someone else's life if they are an obstacle to my well-being? While atheists say, oh well, you, you can still be a moral person without believing in God. Well, to me, this is false. Why judge a person for not being moral if each person has a different concept of right and wrong and there is no God? If there's no God, what's the purpose of being moral? If life is about having fun and being happy, and doing what's considered bad makes me happy, then who are you to judge? If stealing makes me happy, and I have fun doing it, why can't I? What authority do you have to judge me and my choices? An atheist will say, well, of course murder is wrong. Why? Why is murder wrong? If there's no God, what are you basing your morality off of? They can't say that they don't have to base their morality off of anything, because that isn't true. If we go by their logic, then we all must accept that morality isn't based off anything and it just is. My response to that is, they have to accept my choices then. Either there is right and wrong that applies to everyone across the board, or there is no morality at all. It can't be because I said so. Morality must be instituted by an all-powerful authority to be binding. If not, we all become mini-gods and it becomes tribalism or survival of the fittest. The atheist that is still moral will say, wow, you're an evil person for th thinking that it's okay to murder. Well, my response is, why is murder considered evil? They may say, because it is. Wouldn't you feel bad for killing someone? To that I say, why would I feel bad if murder isn't considered a bad thing? What if I believe it's necessary? Hence, the reason why the 20th century was the worst century in human history where three major dictators deemed murder necessary for the good of society. Okay, I'm done playing hypotheticals for now. I hope you can see how and why morality is so messed up these days. Even though the murder hypothetical is an extreme example, I could have inserted any other topic like abortion. The larger point I'm trying to make is that people don't realize they need a savior because right and wrong has become relative when it should be objective. In the Christian life, sin is wrong, abortion is wrong, 
contraception is wrong, murder is wrong, and so on. Why? Because we believe morality is based on an all-perfect God. A Christian morality is the true morality because our morality is based on an infinite, omniscient, perfect God. A morality based on anything less is, in my opinion, useless. For those living in for the world, then yeah, another morality may work for them. But a morality for just this world is a useless morality, because it doesn't link us to the eternal. Now I feel like I can address the need for a savior. Since God is perfect mercy and perfect justice, there must be some kind of perfect punishment and some kind of perfect merciful gift. The perfect punishment is hell. The perfect act of mercy is Jesus' death on the cross. Since God is all perfect, he needs that perfect situation that reconciles his perfect mercy and perfect justice. If God is all justice, and his basis for his judgment is on following his commands and sinning, then every single human to ever exist will fall short, because no one in the history of humanity has never sinned according to God's commandments. But if God is only mercy, every single human being to ever live would make it to heaven regardless of sin, which means morality is useless and that sin doesn't exist, but it does. It also means that God would not be perfect, because an omniscient, all-powerful being must be perfect in all aspects, including his judgment. You can't say theoretically that God can do whatever he wants and let everyone into heaven. If God were to do that, he'd be letting imperfect beings into a perfect realm. This cannot happen. God cannot violate and ignore his own perfect judgment, or else he wouldn't be perfect. Therefore, Jesus' death on the cross was the perfect event that reconciled God's perfect judgment and perfect mercy. So as you can see, Jesus, in the second person of the Trinity, took the divine punishment for sin. Because God is perfect and his judgment is perfect, only another being could willingly take the punishment for our shortcomings. Since Jesus is also God, he himself utilized his own loophole, if I can say it that way. By dying for us, Christ gives us the opportunity to begin again every day. He knows we will not be perfect in one day, but we all have the chance to be better every single day, knowing that even though we fall, Christ's hand is always there to pick us up, but only if we take it. Just because Jesus died for us doesn't mean we get a free ride to heaven. If we don't love him as an intimate friend, I wouldn't want to take my chances. Certainly, God is the perfect judge, and he sees all our good works. But the main reason for Jesus' life was to show us how much he cares for us. Forget about all of life's struggles that make you doubt that, but it's true. Life is what it is, so it's no use complaining. What we need to focus on is learning to love and maintaining a good attitude in the face of hardships. Focusing on the negative only brings discouragement and despair. Trust me, I know. If you can always look forward, live with love and humility, and work hard, that's what life is about. If God himself can make it 33 years on this planet and die an awful death with all life's hardships, so can we. Alright, I want to get into a couple near-death experiences. I love researching this, these stories, so I want to share two of them with you. One night in March 2017, this person with the last name of McGill walked to the Woodland Market in Woodland to buy cigarettes and a soda. She finished the errand, 
visited with some folks, and decided about 9.45 p.m. that it was time to head back home. As she crossed Woodland, she dropped her cigarettes in the road. She bent down, grabbed them, and that's about the last thing she recalls before being hit by a vehicle. It was a momentous turning point in her life. She was taken to UT Medical Center, she said, with crushed knees, broken ribs, injuries to her hip, her femur, internal injuries, and multiple cuts. She spent months in the hospital, during which she coded, which means lost consciousness when her heart stopped beating, seven times. McGill recalls vivid experiences during those times in which she saw people she knew, including her mother, as well as fields, bright flowers, lavish settings, and a heavenly mother figure who told her she could not stay. In fact, the figure said, she would have to go back to the living. McGill talks about the vehicle striking her in March 2017, near where it happened. Quote, I was on a ventilator for a long time. I couldn't talk, but I wasn't scared. McGill insists she'd been shown what death would be like and that it wasn't a terrible thing at all. It just wasn't her time. She quotes, I've heard people tell me, they had you on plenty of high-powered drugs, but until you experience it, I don't think you can really 100% change them, she said. Today, she believes it's her duty to testify for God, to bring people closer to God. I feel like I need to tell people, you know, is your heart right? So this goes into my next story. So this guy's name is Ronald Reagan, which is kind of funny. But as a young man growing up in East Tennessee, he'd lived a rough life, one that included repeated crime and violence fueled by drugs and alcohol. At age 25, a fight almost ended it outside a packaged liquor store. He quotes, I hit him and knocked him down, he recalled, describing the adversary. He broke a bottle and started stabbing me. In just minutes, I was bleeding to death. In the ambulance, he could feel his body floating above the gurney, and yet he knew intellectually that his body was still on the gurney. It was like I was passing through the open mouth of an active volcano or burning lake, he recalled. He saw the, fe he saw the faces of people he knew, people who were dead. They told him, Ronnie, don't come here. There's no escape. My body jerked like I'd been electrocuted, he, he recalled. What he'd seen sure looked like hell. After he recovered, Reagan repented and dedicated his life to helping save others. He's been sharing his story ever since across multiple cities, states, and nations. Today, he's a pastor emeritus at the Meadow Church of God in Blount County. For Reagan, the near-death experience was a gift from God. The one line that stuck out to me in both near-death experiences was, Is your heart right? This is a really important question that I addressed in a previous episode. In all relationships, including ours with God, the measure of our relationship depends on what distractions we have in our heart. I understand that people need space in a relationship to do their own things, but that's not what I'm talking about. When we have distractions like addictions, greed, etc., we may fully love our spouse, but the relationship isn't the truest form. In order to have the best relationship possible, we have to want to remove the distractions. Relationships may last for a while with distractions, but it won't last forever. This is the same for our God. If we have distractions in our heart, or stuff that we love more than God, how can we say that we truly love God? I mean, I'm guilty of this too, and maybe you are. Most of us probably are, but I think we all have to look honestly inward and see what, see what keeps us distracted from our relationships. In other words, is our heart right? All God wants is a relationship free from distractions. Don't we want that with our significant others too? 
So why can't we do both? Just something to think about going forward. So this ends my religious segment, and I'm going to get into my political segment, but if you want to turn it off, go ahead. If you want to keep listening, well, then by all means, keep listening. So the political segment I want to talk about today is is socialism. So many people among the younger generation seem to think socialism is the proper economic alternative to capitalism, and that unlike capitalism, socialism provides equal opportunities, fair wages, and better people. I will use history to point out that socialism was, and is, never perfect. So socialism was a popular idea during the Tsarist regime in Russia. The peasants saw it as a viable alternative to the, to the Tsarist dictatorial measures, which, in a sense, they were. The unyielding dictatorial measures made the peasants back away from all things democratic. The Tsarist regime's half-hearted attempt in incorporating true democracy has led to a long line of democratic hatred, even today. In 1917, Russia and its socialist people were finally able to implement it. Soon, many Russian peasants began to regret supporting the communist Bolsheviks. Russia, during the Tsarist era, utilized a quasi-free market economic system. In it, peasants were able to keep their extra earnings. The Bolsheviks outlawed that when they came to power in what was historically called collectivization. Collectivization involved taking excess grain and earnings from the working class for the benefit, betterment of society. You can guess what happened. The peasants revolted. In the early 1920s, in response to the revolts, Lenin allowed limited free market trade called the New Economic Policy because he realized how fed up the working class was that all their hard work was for nothing. A lot of supporters of socialism, communism, say that the current capitalist system is racist, prejudicial, greedy, inefficient, etc. In certain parts of the economy, well, yeah, this may be true. There are probably business leaders and CEOs that are racist, sexist, etc. But it's not the system that's the problem. It's the business leader. The system that we have in America is amoral. We have the freedom to do what's right, and we also have the freedom to do what's wrong. That's the price of freedom. People in the younger generation think that the solution is to get rid of the system that allows this. Why? The socialist system historically has been worse. According to Stephen Kotkin in his book called Stalin, Paradoxes of Power, he quotes, To revive military industry and supply, the Bolsheviks formed innumerable central commissions which underwent perpetual reorganization, oftening deepening the ruin. Often, those leading commissions were self-interested, in the improvement of their own power and stature. Many were hypocritical, proclaiming to help the masses while doing the exact opposite. The lesson here is the more centralized a commission or government becomes, the less people in control utilize ingenuity and honest means of getting things done. You can say that across all political and economic systems. The people in power of socialist committees that are supposed to help the masses usually end up the biggest hypocrites. If one day capitalism gives way to socialism in this country, greed, inequality, and racism will still be there. Just because the system changes doesn't mean the people do. Socialism from the very beginning has been all about power and selfishness, way more than capitalism. In 1920, $287 million in Russian currency was taken by the Bolsheviks. A, so a socialist regime, regime created by confiscation had begun to confiscate itself, and it never stopped. 
For those that say capitalism takes people's money, just look at what communism does. Listen and remember the example I just gave. Here's another one for good measure. A Bolshevik wrote to Lenin in July 1919, The old comradely spirit of the party has died completely. It has been replaced by a new one-man rule, in which the party boss runs everything. Bribe-taking has become universal. Without it, our communist fellows would simply not survive. This is exactly what will happen if socialism ever comes to this country. I've noticed that socialists today aren't patriotic. But they really are. They are patriotic to their cause. Socialism and their cause bonds them together, as any movement would. Imagine if they bonded together to fix the system we have, instead of trying to tear it down. During Stalin's reign, he always targeted people that specialized in trades and kulaks. So kulaks were peasants that owned property and hired workers. They were especially needed during those times, because they had excess capital and grain to pay and feed starving and poor workers since the economy under socialism still wasn't working. Stalin seized their land and their grain, all because he hated capitalism. I wish I could say it was a lie, but it's not. He equated hard work and success as to being capitalist thieves. He thought that that by hiring workers and owning excess grain, the kulaks were stealing wages off the backs of poor peasants. You know, it's ironic coming from the guy that forcefully forcefully took grain from poor workers for years. During his reign, 5 to 7 million people died due to collectivization and socialist policies. None of those lives even mattered to Stalin. And he's the same guy that proclaimed he was one of the workers. This is a common theme among all communist countries. Famines, lack of technology, and termination of lives deemed enemies of the state was like breakfast, lunch, and dinner for them. And young kids say capitalist countries are imperialist? Did not Russia, and in turn socialism, invade other countries after the war? Did not people get thrown into gulags for not being socialist? And the same thing in China happens to this present day. And they say America is bad? (sighs) Just as the government acquired grain for their nation from the peasants, so will socialists now do. So not just for grain, but all your accumulated wealth. They will say they have only accumulated the excess wealth of the elite. But they are only saying that to get your vote. They will soon acquire more than just wealth. Soon it will be more of everyone's money. Jobs will go overseas because businesses can't afford to pay their workers. And factories will close just like in Bolshevik Russia many years ago. During the peasant revolts, working classes revolted against the government. They would plant only enough grain to feed themselves and even slaughter their own cattle so that the government couldn't steal any more of their property. Food was scarce, not just from closed factories, but because production levels had dropped so low, because the incentive to make and produce more disappeared. Why make and plant more when you won't receive any profits? If there's no profit motive, there's no improvement of machinery, land, and even the human body. According to stats long ago, 50 to 80% of women stopped menstruating due to lack of nutrition and food. Socialism got so bad that three separate peasant revolts broke out in the 20s. The peasants slash working class started to realize that socialism, Bolshevism, wasn't what it was laid out to be. In fact, it was worse than the grain collectivization of Tsarism. It turned into a dictatorship. Another parallel I noticed between the original Bolsheviks and socialism supporters today is that Bolsheviks hated nationalism 
more specifically, Russification, which is the patriotic fervor that all should be Russians. So you could say Americanism today. They, the Bolsheviks, were loyal to no one but themselves and the party. I see the same thing today with people like AOC. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like the communist, hate nationalism and patriotism. Like Lenin, AOC hates patriotism because it represents the power the few have over the many. AOC hates that capitalism can allow people to succeed off of other people's work. She sees the system as the problem. Like Lenin, she is only loyal to herself and her ideals. If she gets power, she will become the very thing she says to hate. She will use other people's work for her personal vision and gain. People will become a means to an end and nothing more. She will demand loyalty to herself, and anyone that dares to disagree with her will be labeled a nationalist and capitalist thief. Doesn't this sound familiar? Because she said it before. History repeats itself time and again, and I do not understand why people can't learn from history. Because people are the same. Humanity does not change over the centuries. We fight the same wars for the same reasons over and over. I am sick and tired of people thinking socialism works because it doesn't. I feel bad for the working class of this country. I wish everyone could live the American dream, American dream, but just because your American dream didn't result in a million dollars doesn't mean the dream is dead. The American dream is about having a freedom of choice to make the living you want to live. In America, there is more opportunity. This is a fact. But the American dream is made for those that work and sacrifice so that their families can have a better life. The American dream is still alive and well. It's not there because you're not good enough. It's not there because you gave up. Me, as a white male, am living the American dream, not because I have an easy life, or that I have the perfect job, or that I have a million dollars in my bank account. I'm living the American dream because I wake up every day with the freedom to make my life and someone else's life better. The American dream is not a guarantee of a perfect job for everyone. Me, as a white male, I can't be an astronaut, or go to Harvard, or play professional sports because I'm simply not good enough. I can already hear the counter-argument. It goes like this. Well, you're a white male, so you have more opportunities than minorities because of systematic racism. Hmm. Somehow, the faults of the past let people in the present be justified for their own situation. Hmm. Whose fault is it that we can't put behind sins of the past? Whose fault is it that you spend more energy on, energy on hatred than making a better life for yourself? What people need to know is that nothing is guaranteed. You make the life you live, regardless of the situation God has given you. If you spend it wasting time getting mad at the world, then you're wasting your time and God's time. My grandfather worked three jobs and barely had money for the groceries every single week. He built his house with his own hands and did everything he could to make a better life for his family. He didn't take his first vacation until he was in his 60s. Just because you're white living in this country doesn't make it easy. We all have our battles to face no matter your skin color. Yes, America has never been perfect, and probably never will, but we have come a long way. Cowards tear people down. Leaders build people up. Choose what you want to be.